This is Case Closed, crime stories from the golden age of radio. Welcome back to Case Closed, old-time radio mysteries that you can find every Wednesday at relicradio.com. Our first story this week comes from the adventures of Philip Marlowe. We'll hear the name to remember from April 9th, 1949. After that, it's Philo Vance and the Scarface murder case. His story from February 14th, 1950. The partner from Mexico City, the stranger dead in Nevada, and the man with the cauliflower ear. All added up to a corpse on a concrete floor. But I couldn't figure why until I found out there was one name above all that had to be remembered. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story... The Name to Remember. The big clock at the far end of the Beverly Room cocktail lounge with the opaque glass ice cubes where there should have been numbers said it was 20 after 5. That meant my new client, Eddie Millette, was late. So sitting at an uncomfortable mushroom for two, I waited and worked on a long drink and stared down into the mirrored top of my table. I stopped staring when the reflection of the tabletop changed from red ceiling to gray Hamburg and pale blue eyes in an almost friendly face. I looked up to find easygoing Eddie Millette looking about as he had been a year ago, dapper in draped flannel, carnation attached, and a thin smile on thinner lips. He sat down, took off his hat, and shook hands all in one quick motion, and I knew he was either in trouble, a hurry, or both. Marlowe, business. Business. You gotta find the nut who's been following me for the last couple of days. He's big. A lot of muscle under a T-shirt and a kind of jacket like the Dodgers wear when they're warming up, you know what I mean? I can't figure out what this bird's after. That bothers me. All the time, he's like it. What? Hanging around. Oh. And if I go for him, he runs. So what I want you to do is, uh, I, you get next to him and the answer to this tag. Here. 50, 70, 80, 100 bucks. Enough, Phil? Enough. You know, Eddie, the law might do this for you for free. Yeah, for John Doe, they might. But Eddie Millett's another story, Molly. You know what I mean? Today, I got a respectable business, war surplus. But the cops, they only remember me as a guy who once did time for being careless with other people's dough. Yes. Besides, I'm in a hurry. My two partners, Lou Tripp and Ruth Dunn, she's also my girl. They're coming back to town tonight. I'd like to spend some time with both of them, without interruption. What do you mean, girl, Eddie? You and that pretty wife I've heard about split up? Yeah, I'm soon for divorce right now. Tina and I never should have been, Marlo. We never... Yeah, I need someone who's softer, more honest than understanding. Know what I mean? Mm. Now, take this here, Ruth. Can I help hey. you, sir? Huh? Oh, oh, yeah, scotch. No bars. Uh, make it a double. Very well, sir. This Ruth Marlowe, she's different. Uh-huh. Good head for business, sweet kid at the same time. Like, for instance, a letter I got from her today. She and Lou were both in Mexico City. She's got all the dope on the deal we're working on, plus the fact she's worrying about me. Uh, that should bring us right back to T-shirt, remember? Where do I start, Eddie? That's uh, the only place I know of, Marlowe. Yesterday, I kind of turned the tables on this guy, trailed him down to the corner of Wilshire and Weston. But he got away in the middle of a lot of traffic, you know what I mean? In a car? Huh? Car. Oh, no, we were both walking. No. Now, I figured from his bill and that T-shirt, he could work in one of these health clubs around it. You find out, then come to my place on Hoover before 8, huh? By the way, he's got black curly hair and uh, one ear is all, all banged up uh, cauliflower-like. Right one. Anything else? No, Eddie, I'll see you. Know what I mean? Huh? <laughs> 
Two hours after I'd left Eddie Millette, I checked with a half a dozen hooray for health clubs in the neighborhood, smelled a lot of liniment, and came away with nothing more than distended nostrils. So at 7.30, I pointed my car toward 8400 North Hoover in the hope that my client could give me something else to go on. The Millette home was well-groomed and sat sedately behind 50 rolling yards of carefully clipped hedge and said the gardener must have gone to Barber's College. So when I leaned against the front doorbell, I expected Eddie and at least a silk lapel smoking jacket with slippers to match. When the door swung open, I got a surprise because I was greeted instead by a lot of white T-shirt and in front of that and coming straight from my head was a fist the size of a muskmelon. Oh! Okay, Private Detective hired by Eddie Millett in the Beverly Room. Get her up. Don't so much as smile crooked or I'll twist your arm in two. Uh, uh, what is it you want? Oh, one thing, a chance to bust you in the nose. <laughs> what nerve. Yeah? Listen, stupid, if I had the time, I'd tie your arm into a square knot, then rip it off at the hinges and throw it away. But right now, I've got what I came for. I'm in a hurry, so you're real lucky. How about Eddie Millette, Muscles? How lucky is he? Very. He's inside, resting. Just like you're gonna be, Mr. <laughs> By the time I got back to my feet and had my right arm unscrewed to where I could reach across my chest to my shoulder holster, a T-shirt was gone. So I started into the house and what I knew was going to be a slightly beat-up client. When I turned on the lights and found nothing in the kitchen, bathroom, or bedroom, I began to worry a little more. I got to the den and saw that the drawers of a desk that were turned inside out, but there was still no Eddie. I opened a side door and started out to the patio, which ran along the front of the house. But then at the staccato report of high heels coming up the flagstone path that led to the front door, I stopped and waited. When the lady, who was a quiet face and quiet clothes, came to a halt in the open doorway, puzzled and called Eddie's name out loud. I figured this had to be Ruth Dunn, girlfriend and partner out of Mexico City. So I walked back through the house to the Eddie. living room. Eddie, it's Ruth. Eddie Mallette, are you playing a game with me? What? Who are you? What are you doing here? I'm Philip Marlowe, Miss Dunn. I was hired by your boyfriend because he was worried about a bunch of muscles in a T-shirt with curly black hair, a cauliflower ear, and a brain you could drop through the hole in a lifesaver. Mean anything to you? Well, no, it doesn't. But where's Eddie, Mr. Marlowe, and why is the front door open like this, and why are all the lights on? In that order, I don't know where Eddie is. Front door's open because that's where T-shirt and I played Ben, the private detective, and all the lights are on because I was looking for Eddie. He's not here any place? The bedroom, the kitchen? So far, no. Come on in here, see if this desk in the den adds for you, maybe. Drawers have been slightly rearranged by a very heavy hand. Incidentally, T-shirt was bragging about getting what he'd come for just as he collapsed me for the second time, so if you... The letters. They're gone. What letters? The ones I wrote to Eddie while I was on the road. He always kept them here in the bottom drawer. Were they business or pleasure? Business mostly, but I... I did talk of... Other things, too. Yeah, I know. Eddie mentioned that when he told me about you and Lou Tripp being due back tonight. Oh, by the way, where is Tripp? Well, I don't know. He left me in Mexico City the day before yesterday and said he'd be here tonight at the latest. Oh, surely, Marla, you don't think that Lou had anything to do with it? Could be. Letters are part business. And part love. So I'd say that the only person who could possibly be behind this is Mrs. Millett. Tina? Yes. And for the oldest and best reason in the world, Marla. Jealousy. Tina'd do anything to make Eddie and me unhappy. She could twist the innocent wording of those letters so that any divorced judge would see things her way. 
She's cruel, Marlowe, and she... Marlowe. Hmm? Under that door there that leads to the garage. It's blood, Marlowe. Stay over there, Ruth. Oh, Eddie. Eddie, are you... Oh, no. Oh, Marlowe, he's... Dead. Isn't he? Yeah, I'm afraid he is. Eddie Millett was dead. Real dead. Oh, Eddie. The right side of his head crushed him. Next to him and on the edge of the ugly pool of blood that had seeped under the door was the grease-coated tire iron that had done the job. I turned Ruth away and it wasn't until we were back in the living room and she'd stopped sobbing long enough to take the double shot of brandy that I'd forced on her that I started for the telephone and a call of Detective Lieutenant Ibarra at Homicide. But before I could pick up the receiver, it went off. Hello? This is Lieutenant Ibarra at police headquarters. I've Ibarra? Huh? <laughs> a great conservative speed. This is Marlowe. I was just going to call you. Oh, no mistake, Lieutenant. I'm at Eddie Millett's. I've been working for him since this afternoon. What's up? Why the call? A dead man named Ellis Clay in a motel outside of Carson City, Nevada, Phil. Yeah? It looks like an accidental explosion in his room there. And the best the sheriff has for identification other than his name in the city, Los Angeles, is a blank sheet of letterhead paper from Eddie Millett's war surplus outfit. I thought Millett might be able to help us out. Is he there? Yeah. And dead, Ibarra. Huh? Murdered with a tire iron sometime in the last hour. What? Mm-hmm. Any idea who did it? A muscle man in a T-shirt, maybe. But at the moment, Ibarra, the motive seems to be a little mixed. Say, wait a minute. I may be able to help you on that Nevada guy. Ruth. Ruth, do you know anything about a man named Clay in Carson City? He had Eddie's address on him when he was killed in an accident. Clay? Yeah. yeah. In Nevada? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, 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 I don't. No. Hello, Ibarra. Yes? A girl here who was one of Eddie's partners never heard of him. All right, but that's unimportant now. What I am interested in is Millette's death. What's the address out there? And why it's 8400 North Hoover. North what? Hoover, as in vacuum cleaner. But look, if it's all the same to you, Ebar, I'd like to move. And I think if I do it fast enough, I've got an even chance of catching up with this T-shirt. Okay? Well, all right, Marlowe, but don't forget, we've got a couple of thousand policemen here in L.A., just in case you can't... Yeah, yeah, goodbye, Ibarra. Ruth. Ruth, honey, why don't you go to your own place and try to take it easy, huh? When I talk to Ibarra again, I'll tell him where you can be found. All right, Phil. Where are you going? The only place that adds now. Tina Millett's. You know where it is? Yeah. The cameo house on Rexford Drive in Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. Also, if it's, if it's any help, she she drives a new cream-colored Nash. But, Marlowe, be careful. Tina may be the one who hired that man in the T-shirt. Yeah, I know. And that, honey, is exactly what I'm banking on. I'll call you. <laughs> After I got the vital statistics on where I could reach Ruth later on, I piled into my car and headed for Beverly Hills in the Cameo House, which was six stories of white stone and glass brick. Tina Millette managed to uh, scrimp by with half of the top floor, and a couple of minutes later, when I got out of the all-mirror elevator, walked to her door, rang, and waited. I was wondering what kind of a reception I'd get. But when the door opened, I stopped wondering and started concentrating. You, uh, you want something? something the texture of spun smoke rings. It stood five feet six inches over the threshold and must have weighed in at close to 120. With every inch a thing of beauty and every palm just in the right place. <laughs> 
I asked you if you wanted something. Do you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, I mean, <laughs> the name's Philip Marlowe, Mrs. Millette. I'm, I'm a private detective your husband hired this afternoon. Oh, why don't you let me in like a good little girl, huh? Because that's something I'm not. Now, get out of here before I call the police. Well, they're probably on their way up here right now. Oh? The husband's dead, Mrs. Milletti. was murdered. Eddie murdered? Yeah, yeah. Now, do you still mind if I come in? No, of course not. I... I don't know what to say. Oh, that's a trite line. What was that? I said you're acting and doing a bum job of it. Why, I ought to slap your face. Or call your boy with the muscles and have him go back to work on my arm for a while. What are you talking about? A lad in a white T-shirt who killed Eddie and then stole a bunch of letters that were going to help you lie your way through a countersuit for divorce. Would leave Eddie both broke and embarrassed. You don't make sense, bright boy. No? First of all, I don't know who you're talking about. And second, if I were going to file such a countersuit, why would I want my husband killed first? Maybe you didn't. We all make mistakes, Mrs. Millette. Which is only one man's opinion. Hmm. So why don't I just pick up my coat here and let the perfect gentleman escort me to the nearest police station? All right, it's a date. I see you bowl quite a bit, Tina. Good enough to win that cup there from the Maplewood Alleys on Wilshire near Weston. <laughs> Eddie figured a health club and I went right along. Never thought about the bowling alley near there and I, uh, oh. Yes, Marlowe? You were saying something? Uh, yes, I was, but the little gun in your hand made me lose my place. Marlowe, I don't believe that Eddie's dead, nor do I believe that you work for him at all. For my money, you're just a not-so-smart boy who was hired by that hussy Ruth Dunn. He's going to need an army of private detectives before I get through, and I mean that. Now back up through those doors and get out of the fire escape. While you do what? Well, I find out exactly what's going on. I'll get out there. It's six long floors to the ground, Marlowe. And I hope with the first step you take that you trip, fall all the way, and break your neck. Goodbye, private detective. In just a moment, we will return to the second act of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first, just a little later on CBS Tonight, you'll hear Sing It Again's Master of Ceremonies, Dan Seymour giving a perfect characterization of a man going crazy. The reason? Well, Dan's got the biggest, hottest news in the history of quiz shows ready for announcement right after someone knocks off tonight's $20,500 Phantom Voice mystery. So be sure to hear Sing It Again tonight when it comes to you at 10 o'clock Eastern Time on most of these same CBS stations. And now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Name to Remember. Tina Millette prodded me out onto the fire escape through a pair of French doors, slammed them shut, and snapped the lock. There was a cold look in her smoky eyes, an unwavering potential about the snub-nosed gun, clenched in her hand and pointed straight at my belt buckle that melted all the gambler out of me fast. So I watched quietly as she backed across the room to the hall door and out. I knew my chances of climbing down six flights of iron fire escape in time to head her off was an idiot's dream. So, <clears throat> kicked the panel out of one of the doors... Reached through and finally got it unlocked. And I went back inside at the phone. Since the victim was on the prowl with a gun in her fist, I figured the least I could do was pass the word along. Hello? Ruth, this is Marlowe. Oh, Phil. Have you found the letters? Not yet, but never mind that now. You got something more important to worry about because your guess on Eddie's ex-wife, Tina, was right on the button. You mean she's the 
one who's really after the letter? Yeah, yeah, that muscle man in the T-shirt is just doing a heavy work for her. And I've got a good idea that he's connected with a Maplewood bowling alley on Wilshire. Where are you now, Phil? In Tina's apartment, alone. I just lost a small debate with her. And get this, Ruth. She hates you, and she's the type who hates hard. Yeah. When she left here, she had a gun, and the chances are at least 50-50 that she's coming your way. So keep your doors locked and stay away from windows, savvy? Yeah, okay, Phil. Oh, oh, one more thing before I shove off. Has Millette's partner Lou Tripp shown yet? No. She hasn't called. Uh-huh. But where are you going, Phil? At Bowling Alley on Wilshire. Only this time I'm swinging first. <laughs> Maplewood was a small and dusky combination six-lane bowling alley restaurant, bar and magazine stand, and cigar store, all slightly down at the heel and more than hungry for business. Only two alleys were in use, and a lanky postgraduate delinquent with a mouthful of gum and a complexion one tone greener than his eye shade was the only houseman in sight. He looked up and watched me as I moved over to the bulletin board where a bank of photographs were tacked up, picturing the champions of the uh, local league. Sure enough, there in the top row and holding a bowling ball that had more expression than his face was the pile of muscles in a T-shirt, which the caption tagged as one Sid Sawyer. So I walked over to the counter where the houseman sat and made like a one-man fan club. What's your problem, Mac? I, uh, I see Sid's up there with the champs. Is he around tonight? I wouldn't know. Uh, where can I get in touch with him? I wouldn't have the faintest idea, Mac. He works here, doesn't he? Yeah, off and on. But you don't know where he lives or what his phone number is, huh? Well, you're just beginning to get the idea. Uh, Come here, you! Cut it out, will you? Take your hands off You get the idea and get it fast unless you want your teeth crammed down your throat. Where does Sawyer live? Now, wait a minute, mister. Take it easy. I'll tell you. He, he's got a room over on Shadow Street, 6340, upstairs. He don't have no phone. All right, that's better. Is he there now? I I think so. But, gee, I don't know why everybody is so interested in Sid Sawyer all of a sudden. Who else is interested? Some babe called a couple of minutes ago. An old friend, she said. That's the reason I give you the store. Yeah. Honest. You see... Sid don't like to be interrupted when he's entertaining old friends. Is that so? Well, this is one party that's going to get crowded whether he likes it or not. 6340 Shadow Street was a top-heavy, stale, gingerbread house. Left over from the days when Los Angeles was a stopover between Spanish missions. I got out of my car and started across the street toward the door when I saw Tina Millette's cream-colored sedan sticking out through a tangle of overgrown brush in the driveway. Which meant I was still in time for the big reunion. I went inside and up the steps to Sawyer's door. There was a light on and movement, but no voices. I slipped my gun out of its holster, knocked lightly and stepped back. And the knob turned slowly and the door cracked open. I kicked hard! What? Yeah, don't move, muscles. I'm returning your visit. Where's Tina? Who's Tina? Look, her car's outside in the driveway. She's here after the letters, isn't she? What letters? You're nuts. I don't know what you're talking about. And these suitcases, you wouldn't be skipping town, would you? Listen, Shamus, you're barking up the wrong tree. I don't know anything, get me? Yeah? Okay, Sawyer, if you insist, we'll do it the hard way. That squares us for that arm-twisting job you gave me. Now we'll start all over again, even. Get up! Come on! Quit hitting me with that gun. I don't enjoy doing it, so the faster you talk, the sooner I'll stop. Where's Tina? I don't know what you do. Make it straight, I haven't got all night. All right, all right, no more. That's better. Jeez. Came and picked up the letters, and she left again. Five minutes before you got here. Five minutes, you're lying. Take a look out that window and tell me why your car's still outside. I don't know what... 
Where? I don't see it. In the driveway next door. Hit. Holy smoke, it's gone. All right, Sawyer, that means I can spare 30 seconds for the rest of the story, so make it fast. She told you little Eddie Millette is dead. That's why you're blowing town, isn't it? No. Now, wait a minute, Marlowe. I never killed him. I just knocked him down. Sure, sure, on a concrete floor with a tire iron. No, Skip I Skip it. Those letters you got were written by Ruth Dunn. Was Tina heading for Ruth when she left here? I don't know. Come on, Sawyer, I'm running out of time. Won't do you any good to try to protect Tina now. Oh, no. We'll see about that, Marlowe. Why, you... I hope Tina was worth a broken jaw. Good night, muscles. I took a close look at Sawyer to be sure he was down for the long count. Then I stepped out the door and into a whispering circle of wide-eyed neighbors who had heard the fight and had already called the police. I flashed my identification, issued a battle order to the three huskiest ones, and then ran down the stairs to my car. I made it from Shadow Street to Ruth's bungalow on Normandy in something under five minutes, but still not fast enough. Because when I ground to a stop in front of the place, I saw that same cream-colored sedan already there, close to a side door. I'd belted up the walk and was halfway to the house when I heard it. <laughs> Made me sick. Went up to a front window where the only light was burning and looked in. A room had been torn up and in the middle of it all, face down on the tangled carpet, was Tina Millette. And it was Ruth who was slumped in a chair, her face buried in her arms and sobbing hysterically. And still dangling from her hand was Tina's snub-nosed revolver. She looked up as I walked in. I know, I know. Come on, baby. Take it easy. It's going to be all right. She had this, she had this gun. She was crazy. She was yeah, yeah. going to kill me. I, I don't know what happened. I struggled with her, and then I I realized I had the gun in my hand. I, I shot her. I didn't even think I just pulled the trigger on her. She's dead, Phil. Yeah, yeah. Come on, Ruth, leave it alone. It's over now. I'll try to get hold of yourself. She brought the letters back. They're on the desk. She said that they didn't matter anymore, that she was mixed up in Eddie's murder and there was nothing left for her but to run. She said she, she took the gun out of her purse. She said I'd ruined her whole life and that she was going to be sure I got what was coming to me before she left. That's when it happened, Phil. I was so scared I went out of my head, I guess. Yeah, we better call Ibarra, honey. I think we can explain it all now, except except one thing. Uh, Ruth, do you remember that guy Barra called us about? The one who was killed in Nevada. Ellis Clay? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Clay. I had the feeling all night that some way his death is tied up with all this. It's only a hunch, but something seems to be missing. What is it, Phil? What's missing? I don't know yet. Look, honey, I want to take a look at these letters. You go call the police, will you? It was a long shot, but while Ruth went down the hall to phone the police, I flipped through the bundle of envelopes that had caused all the trouble. And the long shot began to pay off. I could hear Ruth talking to her desk sergeant as I picked up Tina's revolver. I broke it open. Then a pair of headlights and a red spot of a police car flashed in the driveway, and I knew that Ibarra had figured out a few things for himself. I put the gun down on the table again, told Ruth to forget her call, and when the lieutenant came in, Ruth and I together explained everything that had happened right up to Tina Millette's body on the floor. Well, it's quite a mess, isn't it? Anyway, this part of it looks like a clear case of self-defense. Right, Marlon? Exactly right, Ibarra. It looks like self-defense, only there's something missing. Something missing? What do you mean, Marlon? At least three letters in that packet there. I think they're the last ones you wrote to Eddie, Ruth. They're gone. Well, that's strange. I... I don't understand it. And another missing item is Lou Tripp. 
at his partner. He didn't show up tonight because I think he's in Nevada, dead under the name of Clay. What? Marlo, you you mean that Lou and that that, that Clay were really the same man? Mm-hmm. But what are you getting at with all this theory, Marlo? You'll see, Barra. Lou Tripp was double-crossing Eddie Millette. Lou went to Mexico with Ruth here, only he left early and flew to Nevada to close a big deal under the name of Clay. Meanwhile, some letters were written from Mexico to preserve the illusion that Lou Tripp was still there. Understand what I mean, Ruth? Yes, I... I think so. Yeah. And then the unexpected happened. Lou, identified as Clay, died accidentally in Nevada. That meant that sooner or later those letters would be exposed as lies. Right, Lou? Marlo, that gun on the table, watch it! Too late, Lieutenant. Now, don't move. Either one of you. You haven't got a chance, baby. Stay back. Please, Bill, I don't want to kill you, but I will if you come one step closer. Stay back, Marlo. She means it. Look, baby. You're licked. Marlo. It was a good try, but you lost. Stay back. Why not go out? Like a lady. (laughs) Oh, what difference does it make now? Well, Marla, when she cracked, she really went to pieces and told the whole story. Yeah? Yeah, she and Lou Tripp were working together all right. When he died in Nevada, the lie she told in those letters put her in a tight jam with Eddie, see? And when she found Eddie unconscious in his garage, she finished him. But when she went for the letters, Sid Sawyer scared her off. Is that it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Incidentally, the state is going to give Sawyer a long vacation in one of their better institutions. Good, good. What happened down at Sawyer's place, Ibarra? You know, Ruth had a lot of nerve, Marla. Yeah. She found Tina Millette's car at Sawyer's, so she waited in the back seat until Tina came out with the letters. Then she sapped her, drove the car to her house, and faked that slick self-defense setup. And she still doesn't know where she made the mistake that caught her. Hey, where was it, Phil? Well, she was being real cagey, Barra. She decided it was too dangerous to write the name Clay down anyplace, so she made it a name to remember. And she did. But too well. What do you mean, Phil? <laughs> well, when I asked her for it, the first name Ellis popped out, too. Mm-hmm. There was no legitimate way for her to know that you gave me the full name over the phone, but I only gave her Clay. That was an opening, but I needed proof. Mm-hmm. So you needled her until she made a break. Mm. Then you walked into the gun she'd grabbed. Uh, you take some long chances, Phil. Oh, oh, I'll do anything to see justice prevail, Ibarra. I smell a rat. You should. I emptied the gun. <laughs> when she was phoning. <laughs> Good night, Phil. Good morning, Ibarra. When I left police headquarters and walked to my car, first gray streaks of a new day were breaking in the east. It should have given me a lift, but it didn't. Now it was time for me to go home and go to bed, but... Instead, I sat in my car with the door open and smoked a cigarette while I watched the dawn come up. I couldn't help thinking what an odd trick nature plays on us. Some of our most beautiful creatures are our most deadly. For instance, Ruth. How soft and sweet and lovely she was. And how hard she could swing a tire iron.
Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Gene Bates, Paul Fries, Yvonne Patey, Jack Moyles, and Jerry Hausner. Detective Lieutenant Ibarra is played by Jeff Corey. The special music is by Richard Orant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... It was hot and still. An August night in the middle of April. But that didn't matter to the striptease dancer in the golden mask. Because murder made her blood run cold. The night the heat wave struck. There'll be more dramatic excitement of the chase tomorrow on CBS's two Sunday shows, Broadway is My Beat and The Adventures of Sam Spade. Broadway is My Beat brings you The Adventures of Danny Clover, whose beat is the Great White Way and whose cases involve a vast, strange assortment of Broadway characters. Later, Dashiell Hammett's great detective, Sam Spade, cuts another caper surrounded by mystery and mayhem in the grand style. The Adventures of Sam Spade and Broadway is My Beat are regular Sunday features on most of these same CBS stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately on most of these stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Don't you think you're being a little obvious? Don't you think she rates it, Markham? <laughs> Have you ever seen a more beautiful woman? You've been staring at her for an hour. Is our foremost private investigator doing some really private investigating? That is a leading question, Markham. <laughs> the district attorney should know better than to prompt a witness. Besides, you haven't conceded that she's beautiful. I can see. <laughs> oh, she's much prettier than that, my friend. <laughs> Besides, I'm certain she's been trying to attract my attention. Vance, she's dining with a gentleman. Both of them seem to me to be minding their own business. Are you sure you're not using a little hopeful imagination? Quite. Do you know the man she's with by any chance? No, I don't. Fact is, I can't make out his face very well. You can see a scar on it. I imagine he's about 40. And he's relatively bald and quite stocky. There's something familiar about him. And there's something very lovely about his blonde companion. Yes, there is. I think she's... Markham, did you see that? Did I see what? They're leaving, and I could swear she indicated she wanted me to follow her. You intend to go after her? Yes. Vance, wars have been fought over less. <laughs> <laughs> well, our check is paid. Let's go. They've just passed the head waiter. We can probably catch them in the foyer before they get into the street. All right, but after we do catch them, then what? That all depends on whether I did get a signal from the lady. Well... Here we are. Too late, Vance. They've already gone out the street door. Mm. Oh, no, no, the man is still here. You see that chap, the one with the scar? Oh, there he is, sitting over there in that chair. Yeah, the man is still here. 
that's the breaks I get. <laughs> Come with me a minute, will you? Right. I beg your pardon, sir. Well, what is it? The young lady you were dining with. Would you mind telling me where she is? What are you talking about? He's talking about the young lady you were dining with. We've been watching the two of you inside for over an hour. I'm very sorry, but I'm afraid you gentlemen were mistaken. What do you mean? I haven't been with any young lady all evening. Tell the sergeant what you told me. No, I, I can't. I can't talk. What's going on, Williams? What is all this? This is Miss George Foster, sergeant. Foster, eh? It was her husband who was murdered a couple of hours ago? That's right. Sergeant Heath is up at her house now, looking the place over. I found her on my beat, crying, just like she is now. So I brought her here to headquarters. I see. Uh, Mrs. Foster. Uh, Mrs. Foster. You want to take it easy, Mrs. Foster. Let Officer Williams take you back to your house. No, no, no. I don't want to go back there. I don't ever want to go back. My husband was shot. I saw him shoot my husband. I don't ever want to go back to that house. You saw who shot your husband, Mrs. Foster? Did you know the man? No, no, I didn't. Can you describe him? Yes. Yes, I know exactly what it looks like. Well, that'll help us find him. Uh, Williams, take down the description Mrs. Foster gives you. Then take her into the rogues gallery and see if she can find the man in our files. We're liable to crack this case without leaving headquarters. Hello, Philo Vance speaking. This is Markham Vance. Are you entirely recovered from that little restaurant scene last night? Not quite. I'd hate to believe that girl wasn't attractive enough to stay in my memory overnight. Don't tell me you found out something about her. No, that isn't the reason for my call. A man named Foster was murdered last evening, Vance, just about the time we were having dinner. Between 7 and 8 o'clock, you mean? Yes, his wife saw the killing, was able to describe the man who fired the shot. More than that, she made a positive identification from a rogues gallery photograph. The killer was a man named Norman James. Really? Yes, really. Well, you're entitled to an easy case once in a while, Markham. This sounds as if you have one. Does it? Well, doesn't it? Listen, the man Mrs. Foster positively identifies as having killed her husband at 7.30 last night is the man we watched every minute between 7 and 8. The man who was dining with that beautiful blonde. red nine? A black ten? A black eight. Look, beautiful, babies can play solitaire. Why can't you? Maybe because I'm not a baby. What goes on a red queen? A yellow pumpkin. What? Don't bother me. I'm busy. I'm reading. It's a very good picture of you in the papers, Norman. Ah, it's not so good. Oh, I think it's beautiful. It shows that scar on your face so clear. Daddy. Now, what is it? That Mr. Vance you told me to make eyes at in the restaurant's awful cute. That Mr. Vance happens to be awful smart. You make sure you never talk to him, never see him again. You understand that? But he doesn't know who I am. How could I ever talk to him or see him? You know who he is. Sure. You could go to see him. Only, baby, you're not that stupid, are you? 
Who says I'm stupid? You do, every time you open your mouth. What? This newspaper says that I'm going to be arrested for murder. Because of you, the district attorney and Philo Vance are going to be my alibi. They'll swear they saw me in the restaurant with you at the time George Foster was shot. Now, Mrs. Foster, please calm down for just one moment. You seem to have made a terrible mistake. It wasn't a mistake, Mr. Markham. I swear it wasn't. I saw the man who killed my husband. It, it was this Norman James, the man whose picture I picked out from the police files. But Mrs. I Foster... couldn't have been mistaken. I saw him. I'll never forget his face when he shot my husband. He did it, I tell you. He did it. Mrs. Foster, I dislike saying this to you, but it would be physically impossible for him to be in the restaurant where I saw him between oh. 7 and 8 o'clock and at your house killing your husband at the very same time. Now, wouldn't it? I don't know, and I don't care. And there is a possibility, of course, that Norman James had a twin brother, in which case I can figure out what happened. We're checking into his background now. Look, Mr. Markham, you're the district attorney. You, you, you know all about murders and alibis and all that sort of thing. I don't know anything about them. All I know is my husband was killed. And I saw the man who did it. And that man was Norman James. I swear it was Norman James. I don't doubt either your sincerity or your identification, Mrs. Foster, but there are certain... Oh, excuse me. Come in. Mr. Markham? Yes, Williams, what is it? We made a thorough check on Norman James' background, Mr. Markham. He was an only child. No brothers or sisters, twin or any other kind. That's definite. I see. Uh, thank you, Williams. All right. Well, now what? So the man had no twin brother. I, I, I saw him kill my husband. And you say you saw him in the restaurant at the same time. I not only saw him, I spoke to him in the foyer. Well, well then what does this mean? Mrs. Foster, I say to you in all sincerity... I wish I knew. Daddy, I've got it. What? A black two goes on a red three, right? Betty, baby, you're a genius. Then take me out somewhere for dinner. Geniuses get hungry, too, you know. You're going to stay right here in your apartment. You'll have your dinner sent in. You're not going to move out of this place until I say so. Why do I have to stay right here in my apartment? Why can't I go out? You can go out during the day, but keep away from any place where a man might see you. Oh? I don't want Philo Vance tracking you down. I don't want them talking to you. I never talk to strangers. Somehow, Betty, baby, what you have makes strangers talk to you. Hmm? Right now, I'm on Easy Street. Nobody's got a thing on me. And except for one little detail, I'm completely in the clear. Hey, who could that be? Could be the detail I was talking about. Right on time, too. I'll go to the door. You take my gun out of my top coat pocket. Uh -huh. You'll find a silencer in the other pocket. Screw down the end. Uh, which end? Never mind. I'll do it myself. Oh, I... I'm coming. Hold everything. I'll get your gun and silencer out. You can put it on yourself. All right, all right. Hi. Hi. You know, Betty. Sure. Pleased to meet you. You know that guy, dope. Oh. Well, James, you know why I'm here? I most certainly do, and you're right on time. You came for the payoff, right? That's right. Here's the gun and silencer, Dad. What's that for? Nothing. I just want to keep them in my suit pocket, that's all. How much would you say I owed you? What you promised? $5,000. Your life is worth that, isn't it? Yes, it is. But your life isn't. Hey, don't! <coughs> oh! Gee, Daddy. You 
he dead? Wait a minute while I make sure. Yeah, he's dead all right. Gee, alive one minute and dead the next. That's life, isn't it? Yes, my brilliant accomplice, it is. You know, Daddy, when you said for me to get you that gun, I was scared. Why? I thought maybe you were going to kill me. Why would I kill you, genius? Why? Yeah. Well, because. Because I know too much. We're almost at the morgue, Vance. You want to tell me now why you developed a sudden interest in a very ordinary shooting? Yes, Markham. You called me a little while ago to tell me that an ex-heavyweight fighter named Joe Stockton had been found shot to death. That's right. After quitting the ring, Stockton became a strong-arm man for a racket gang. This sounded to me like just an ordinary gangland rub-out. I called you only because I'd promised to advise you of anything that happened since George Foster was killed. That, of course, is the mysterious murder that has me confused. You've got a lot of company. Oh, Mrs. Foster positively identifies Norman James as her husband's murderer. And we saw James in a restaurant at the time of the murder. Now, how can that be? It can be very easily. It can? Yes. Well, maybe you'd better tell me as long as it's so easy. Well, this Joe Stockton, the one whose body we're going to see, he's about five feet ten. Just about. Heavy set. Yes, why? Practically bald, about forty. Why, yes. How did you know? I didn't know. I merely surmised. Oh. And I also more than surmise now that I can give you the details of how Norman James could have killed George Foster. One more question. Did Stockton have a scar on his cheek? Definitely not. Oh. What's the O for? It's for the sudden collapse of a beautiful theory. I take back all my previous questions, Markham. They mean absolutely nothing now. I'm afraid I don't know how Norman James could be in two places at once after all. Nor do I know how I can ever again find that beautiful blonde. This is District Attorney Markham. The Scarface murder case opened with the killing of George Foster. Foster's wife, who saw the murder, positively identifies Norman James, still at liberty, as her husband's killer. But Vance and I are certain we saw James in a restaurant at the time of the murder. The killing of a petty racket strong-arm man proves no clue, even though Philo Vance believed it might at first. At the moment, Vance and I are questioning Mrs. Foster again. Neither Mr. Markham nor I are doubting you, Mrs. Foster. But what reason did Norman James have to kill your husband? Reason, reason. Is the reason important? I saw him do it. Isn't that enough? Not with the situation we find ourselves in, Mrs. Foster. Well... It'll be your word against his, and he has us to back up his alibi. Perhaps your giving us a reason for his killing your husband might help us. All right. My husband borrowed money from Norman James. I never knew his name, but I'd seen his face when he came to the house. My husband was supposed to pay him a very high interest rate, and he couldn't pay it. He couldn't pay James back, so he was killed. So that's Norman James's racket. That's right. Mm. That second murder could have explained all this so easily, Markham. But it didn't. 
What are we going to do to break James' alibi, Vance? If I could find that blonde he was with at the restaurant, that might do it. I don't see how. I do, but it's too early for me to explain. Lend me an officer from the homicide department, a telephone book, and I might be able to locate her. You don't know her name? No, nor where she lives, but let me have what I asked for, and there's still a chance I can trace her for you. For me? I beg your pardon. For both of us. That's all, sir. Shave, haircut, massage, all finished. Pay the cashier, will you, please? Yes. Who's next, please? I am, Charlie. Ah, it's you, Mr. James. Uh, You want to shave, maybe? I want something, Charlie. But there's no maybe about it. You owe me a hundred bucks. I want the hundred or ten bucks interest. Uh, Mr. James, I wanted to ask you something. Things are a little tough. Tough for me, too. You wanted the money, you asked me for it. You got it. You know you'd have to pay me, didn't you? Yes. Well, what are you waiting for? I haven't got it, Mr. James. Maybe I'll have it for you tomorrow. Tomorrow, huh? Yeah, tomorrow, sure. Give me another day, will you, Mr. James? Just one more day. Okay. That'll be two bucks more interest for that extra day. I'll be back tomorrow about this time. Better have the money, Charlie. Or the interest. I'll try. If it'll help any in your trying. Remember what happened to George Foster. He owed me money and he didn't pay. So I paid him off. Oh, never mind, thank you. Goodbye. Well, any luck, Williams? No, Mr. Vance. Any more numbers for me to call? There are only about three more on my list. I think I'll make the next call myself. Okay, you try for luck. Here's the phone. Thanks. Let's see. We called about 30 numbers, didn't we, Mr. Vance? So far, yes. I'm sure this has to work. Oh, maybe if I knew what you were trying to do, or... Shh. Hello, Salon. How do you do? My name is Philo Vance. I'm trying to find a girl. I wish you luck, brother. Happy hunting. Just a moment, please. I'm hoping that this particular girl is one of your customers. Well, what's her name? Well, I don't know. Oh, you're a big help. What's she look like? She's blonde. That's big news. I'd say she was the kind of girl who'd come into your establishment about three times a week. Does that help any? Well, it might. Give me a little bit more to work on. She's about five foot eight, very attractive, Mm -hmm. very smart dresser. Her hair is blonde, but not golden. Flatten them, huh? Dark eyebrows, nice mouth, gray eyes? Mm, Well, I don't know what color her eyes are. Uh, Do you know somebody that answers that description? Yes. Well, that's fine. (laughs) Does that make me a landmark for tourists? You are. As far as I'm concerned, I'm coming down to see you right away. You're the district attorney. You've got to help me. Norman James will kill me, just like he killed George Foster. He'll kill me. I know, Charlie. I heard you. You're a barber, and you borrowed money from James and can't pay him back. Is that it? Well, he lends money to a lot of us people. Barbers, newsstand men, taxi drivers. But we have no security, so he charges us high interest. And when we don't pay, he has us beaten up. He killed George Foster. He told me he did. You've got to protect me. You've got to arrest him. I could arrest him, of course. I could have had him arrested when Foster's wife identified him for us. But I'm sure I can't make a charge stick against him. Well, what does that mean? That he can take me out and kill me if he wants? 
No, I'll see that you're protected all day tomorrow and up until the time when Philo Vance gets the evidence he needs against James. Why can't you arrest him? Why don't you put him in jail? He threatened me, didn't he? Charging those high rates of interest is illegal, isn't it? Why can't you arrest him? Perhaps I will. In any event, Charlie, you have nothing to worry about. I give you my word that you won't be bothered by Norman James again. Daddy. Oh, bother me, will you? <laughs> A lot of men say I bother them. Isn't that silly? Everything they put in your face, they left out in your head, kid. I bet you don't think I have any brains. That's the only bet you ever made that you had a chance of winning. What do you want? I want to go out. With two. The beauty parlor, what do you think? Gee, you're stupid. Yeah, I know. You've been to the beauty parlor once this week already. You said I could go anyplace where there weren't any men, didn't you? Well... Well, there's no men in a beauty parlor except Antoine. He just does my hair. You need wake on the inside of your head, kid. Oh, can I go, Daddy? It's only right down the street. I'll be back in a couple of hours. It doesn't take long for my hair to dry. Okay, okay, go ahead. You'll pester me to death if I don't let oh, you. Oh, thanks. I want to go down to see Charlie the Bobby. You'll sneak out anyhow. <laughs> so go ahead. I'll pick you up there. Okay. What are you going to have done? I think I'll have my hair just a shade lighter. Don't you think that'll be becoming? I guess Just so. a shade lighter. I don't know. Where I sit, you're lightheaded enough already. You know something? I don't mind sitting under this hair dryer at all. Not a bit. I am glad, madame. Madame? Yes. I'm not a madame. I'm more of a... Whatever it is that means I'm younger. Yes, miss. You know, you're cheating me. You ain't French. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all right. I like you. I like you as well as I liked Antoine. Except your mustache is cuter. <laughs> I think I'll have you every time I come in here. I'm a very good tipper. Oh, I'm sure you are. Oh, I'm sleepy. Noise from that dryer makes me sleepy. <laughs> well, why not sleep a little then? I can't. Noise from the dryer keeps me awake. Oh. Can you play solitaire? Mm, I imagine so. I just learned to play. That's quite an achievement. <laughs> sure, amaze Daddy. Daddy? Oh, forgot you're new here. I met Mr. James. He's waiting for me downstairs. I hope he won't mind waiting a little longer. He'll wait. Got a lot of patience. He has to have with me. The only time he doesn't have any patience is when he's jealous. Oh, he's jealous? I'll say. He killed a guy just because he took me out once. How do you like that? Joe Stockton? That's a guy? Uh-huh. Say, you read the papers, don't you? So do I. Gee, the things you can learn. Yes, I know. From other things besides newspapers. What? Oh, it doesn't matter. You say your friend Mr. James is waiting for you downstairs? Yeah, but he won't mind. Well, we won't keep him waiting long. I'll just turn the dryer up a little... So we can get everything over in a hurry. There's Daddy. I mean, Mr. James. That's nice. Standing over there in the doorway waiting for me, just like I said he would be. Oh, thank you very much for doing my hair so well. Oh, it's quite all right. And I think I want a word with your Daddy. Sure, I'll get him. Daddy! Yeah, baby? Come on over here. 
Look, kid, let's get moving. We got a... This nice man wants to speak to you. He just did my hair. Don't you think it looks beautiful? Hello, James. We meet again. You're Philo Vance. That's right. And after what your friend here just told me, I think I've got all I need to turn you over to the district attorney. After what I told you, I didn't tell you anything. Besides, I saw Philo Vance in the restaurant. He didn't have a mustache. The one this guy's wearing comes off. Can't you see? It's a phony. Better you dope I could beat I don't think you can do anything at all, James, except come with me to see Mr. Markham. That's one man's opinion. Betty talked you're smart enough to put everything together. I'm getting out of here. I doubt that. Okay, Vance, let's play rough. All right, come. Oh, you've killed him, Vance. You've killed Daddy. No, my dear, I didn't. I just knocked him out. I didn't kill him. I wouldn't dream of sparing the state all that trouble. I'm a patient man, Vance, a very patient man, but I'm also a very curious one. Now... We know from his confession and, and from what his girl Betty told us that Norman James did kill George Foster and later the ex-prize fighter Joe Stockton. But we did see James in the restaurant at the time Foster was killed. Did we? Of course we did. He was sitting over in a corner with his girl. The girl was making eyes at you, uh, you claimed. Then they left, we followed, and there was James sitting in the foyer. Hmm. Markham, do you remember why I thought the prize fighter Joe Stockton would have a scar on his cheek when we were en route to the morgue to identify him? Yes, but he didn't have. I told you that. It was Joe Stockton who was in the restaurant, Markham, not Norman James. Oh, don't tell me that. I spoke to James myself. So did you, in the foyer. Oh, that was Norman James. But the man in the restaurant, the one we saw with the girl between seven and eight, was Joe Stockton. Stockton? He was built like James sat in the shadows so we couldn't really see his face, and he made sure we noticed the scar on it. You mean the scar was just makeup that was put on Joe's cheek? Exactly. Now, here's what happened. The girl had instructions to attract my attention. Your attention, that is, because you're the district attorney, and you were to be Norman James' alibi. I see. It was all set up for us to follow the two of them out the door. Then they were to disappear into the street, and Norman James was to be found by us seated in the restaurant foyer. He denied there had been a girl with him to intrigue us, to make sure we remembered him. That was the plan, and it worked. Yes. You see, James had time to kill George Foster between 7 and 8 and get to the restaurant afterwards, just as we were leaving. And then later, James had to kill Joe because of the possibility that Joe would either blackmail him or talk in the future. That's right. Huh? It was a very clever plan, and it almost worked. I figured the girl would be a key to all of this, and I also knew that a girl such as she would be a beauty parlor addict. She'd go to one several times a week. Probably a swanky one. So I called all the better beauty parlors in Midtown and finally found the right one. You most certainly did. That was quite a trick, finding a girl in a big city without knowing anything about her. Thank you. After I found her, I also found a way of making her talk. The result, you know. She put Norman James right in the middle of a double murder rap. Put him in the middle and us at the end of the Scarface murder case. <laughs> That's it for 
Case Closed this week. You can find more from Philo Vance, Philip Marlowe, Case Closed, all the other Relic Radio podcasts, and our Shoutcast stream, all at relicradio.com. Lots to listen to, all for free, thanks to your support. If you'd like to help out, visit donate.relicradio.com or click on one of the links on the website. You make it all possible. Thanks to those who have helped out. Thanks for joining me today. Be back next Wednesday with another hour of Case Closed.